Well, hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And it's great to have you along with us. Hang on, I got a bit of an echo on my end here. So I'm going to see if I can fix that. Hang on one second. Oh, well. If it's not on uh, year end, I will live with it until the break. (laughs) Now, um, I'm going to talk today about why devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary is essential to the spiritual life. You know, many Catholics agree that devotion to Mary is a, a great consolation in our days, just as Our Lady prophesied to Mother Mariana uh, some four centuries ago in Quito, Ecuador. But I aim to show that devotion to Mary is actually necessary and always has been. Uh, And of course, we'll talk about why. But first, it is our custom on No Nonsense Catholic to begin the program with a gospel from the Sunday that began the week. Now, I usually take that gospel from uh, Mass in the extraordinary form, that is to say, the traditional Latin Mass. However, this past Sunday, I had occasion to assist at the ordinary form and two things struck me. First, that the uh, the Extraordinary Form Lectionary is a one-year cycle, and we have now gone through that Extraordinary Form Lectionary twice on this program, whereas the Ordinary Form Lectionary is on a three-year cycle, so there's lots of additional readings that we can employ, stuff that we haven't talked about. And after all, the Bible is the Bible. Second thing that struck me, is the fact that most uh, VMPR listeners assist at the ordinary form. That probably describes you. Uh, But if you go to the traditional Latin Mass, well, you're probably getting a pretty good quality sermon or homily on Sundays. Whereas if you're attending the Novus Ordo, maybe not so much. Uh, And now this Sunday in the ordinary form was Good Shepherd Sunday. And the priest who celebrated the Mass that I attended took the opportunity to give a homily about why we need to be good shepherds, and that means supporting the redistribution of wealth. Okay, not charity, mind you, but supporting confiscatory, you know, political policies that take from the rich and give to the poor, and voting for politicians who advocate them. And of course, you know, the problem with this is that the history of the 20th century is just chock full of examples of countries that set out to redistribute wealth and ended up redistributing poverty. Uh, Venezuela is is a good recent example. But why should that be? I mean, in theory, it, it seems that confiscating the wealth of more successful people and spreading it around ought to make the rest of society more prosperous. But when the Soviet Union confiscated the wealth of successful farmers, food became scarce. In fact, as many people died of starvation under Stalin in the 1930s as died in the Holocaust under Hitler in the 1940s. And the reason why isn't complicated. If you confiscate the wealth, uh, you can only confiscate the wealth that exists at a given moment in time. You can't confiscate 
the wealth of the future. See, that, that future wealth is less likely to be produced when people see that it's going to be confiscated. Now, the church has always recognized that although we're all created in the image and likeness of God, all have an equal dignity, that there are natural inequalities arising from various you know, physical and material causes, and a person must not exploit those inequalities by taking advantage of the less fortunate. God's gifts should be distributed in an equitable manner, and we need to be charitable uh, as a matter of justice. <clears throat> but we also have a right to private property for such reasons as, well, sustaining our own lives, for the, the care of our dependents, for sustaining ourselves and our families in times of illness or you know, misfortune, saving for a rainy day, as we would say. And that's why the church has always, you know, uh, condemned socialism, because it violates both individual and family rights. Okay, so for the nonce, at least, I'm going to start looking at uh, the readings, particularly the gospel readings from the Sundays in the ordinary form. And as I mentioned before, this past Sunday was Good Shepherd Sunday. And the gospel was taken from John 10, verses 27 through 30. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can take, I'm sorry, no one can take them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all and no one can take them out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. Thus far, the words of the Holy Gospel. So Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, because sheep know the voice of their shepherd, and they won't follow a stranger. And just as the shepherd protects his sheep, Jesus protects his people from uh, eternal harm, especially. See, because believers can certainly expect to suffer on earth, but Satan can't harm their souls or take away their eternal life. You know, there are many dangers here on earth, both spiritual and physical, because this, this is the devil's domain, you know, according to 1 Peter 5.8. But if you choose to follow Jesus, if you listen to his voice, he will give you that everlasting safety. And the image of the flock and the shepherd occurs uh, frequently in the Old Testament, to describe the relationship of Israel with God, or simply the relations of the people with their leader. And more than once, the prophets denounced as wicked shepherds, right, specifically, uh, those who were in authority that exploited the people or led them astray, whether it was kings or priests or false prophets. And in the final analysis, they said, God alone is the shepherd to whom the flock belongs and who can properly lead it and feed it. And they were longing for the Messiah, who would be a devoted shepherd who would act solely in God's name. Now you get down to verse 30, and Jesus says, the Father and I are one. Now this is the clearest statement of Jesus' divinity that he ever made. You know, God the Father and God the Son are not the same person, but they are one in nature, the divine nature. So Jesus is not merely a nice man or, or a good teacher. He's God, and his claim to be God was unmistakable. 
So the next verse says that the religious leaders wanted to stone him because the law said that claiming to be God was a, a blasphemy punishable by death. So now for some context. In the verses that precede this reading, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, who is not the shepherd nor the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf approaching, and he leaves the sheep and runs away, while the wolf catches and scatters them. He runs away because he's only a hired hand, and he has no concern for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay, my, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, too, <clears throat> that do not belong to this fold. I must lead them as well, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. So a hired hand, Jesus says, tends the sheep for money, while a shepherd does it out of love. The shepherd owns the sheep and is committed to them. So Jesus, isn't he's just not doing a job. He loves us so much that he will even lay down his life for us. And false prophets and false teachers don't have that kind of commitment. Now, in context, the other sheep that he says uh, that he has were non-Jews, right? Jesus came to save the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And his words, there will be one flock and one shepherd, tells us that all are to be gathered in what is, you know, can be only one true church. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But the simile of the Good Shepherd, uh, our Lord teaches us how great is his compassion and love for all mankind. All men, Jews and Gentiles, male and female, slave and free, were all his sheep, and he gave his life for all, being sacrificed on the cross to redeem us from sin and hell. Therefore, we are all redeemed. As Pope Francis famously said, even atheists are redeemed. And that got him into a, a certain amount of, uh, it caused a certain amount of confusion because there were people saying, oh, Pope Francis teaches universal salvation. Pope Francis says everyone's going to heaven. And of course, he didn't say that at all. He said we're all redeemed. That doesn't mean we're all going to heaven, but it means that that. Christ paid the price for us all, and therefore we all, all have an equal opportunity for eternal salvation. Jesus redeemed us all, and he is therefore the only good shepherd. And all others who are called to the pastoral office, right, to be priests and, and, and bishops and deacons, they're only good shepherds insofar as they imitate Jesus in their love and care for the flock confided to them. It is an important distinction. And we're going to be talking about that when we come back. We're going to take a look um, at uh, something else in the gospel that's related to the theme of the Good Shepherd, and that's the parable of the lost sheep. Also going to be talking about devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, and how it is essential, even necessary, to the spiritual life. Okay, we'll be right back after
All right. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Got rid of that echo in my headphones. I'm a much happier camper and will be less distracted from now on. We've been talking about um, the reading from the Ordinary Form last Sunday, which was uh, the Good Shepherd. And before the break, I mentioned that related to that Good Shepherd theme is the parable of the lost sheep from Luke 15, verses 4 through 7. Which one of you, if you have a hundred sheep and lose one of them, will not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he does find it, he lays it on his shoulders joyfully. Then when he returns home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my sheep that was lost. In the same way, I tell you, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who have no need of penance. So Jesus knows his own, right? He knows all about us. He knows our needs, our weaknesses, our thoughts, uh, our actions. He leads us into the fold of his church, and he helps his sheep by his grace, enlightens us by his doctrine, nourishes and strengthens us with his flesh and blood in the most blessed sacrament. His pastoral love is infinite and therefore divine. He died for us all. He redeemed us all, as we mentioned in the last segment. But we must cooperate with the graces won for us on the Holy Cross if we wish to be among the sheep at his right hand on the day of judgment, to be among those to whom he will address the words, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And there's several doctrines uh, that are especially conveyed in the parable of the Good Shepherd. For example, he distinctly foretells his his sacrifice and his death when he says, I lay my life down for my sheep. The sheep belong to him because he's bought them with his precious blood. And our Lord foretold that his followers would be united in one fold under one shepherd. According to our Lord's words, there was to be only one church, and this church was to be united. It was to spread itself over the whole face of the earth, and all nations were to be gathered into its fold. Okay, it wasn't meant to be split into 40,000 different denominations. The church foretold by our Lord was to be Catholic or universal. And this one united and universal church, which our Lord founded, can only be the Catholic church, in which the faithful of the whole world are joined together in real unity of faith and, and government under one good shepherd, our Lord Jesus, and the visible shepherd of the church, the Pope. And this This reality is what made Christendom unique in the history of the world. The Christian civilization that rose like a phoenix from the ashes of the pagan Roman Empire, okay, the the, the distinction of Christendom from the pagan empires was precisely this, that the Catholic kingdoms uh, that emerged uh, from the fall of the Roman Empire, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, England, et al., they were sovereign kingdoms with their own languages, their own customs, their own traditions, but they were all united in the one true religion. As St. Paul prophesied in Ephesians 4, there shall be one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in us all. You know, you realize that medieval Christendom was the first civilization in history that did not have its economic foundation in slavery. This civilization fulfilled St. Paul's ideal of many peoples united together in one faith. You know, 
<clears throat> there's a lot of talk these days about unity and diversity. This is this is real or true university, uh, unity and diversity. And because uh, it is the actual historical realization of that ideal that Western civilization, Christian civilization, flourished and became the envy of the world. And that's why it's so antithetical to true, you know, true Catholicity to support political globalism. You know, and considering the globalists' supposed hatred of the old colonialism that supposedly destroyed various societies by imposing Christian morality on them, it is, you know, ironic or hypocritical, actually, that the globalists are only too happily happy to destroy our society and seek precisely to impose their own false morality. But there really is a distinction. What, take an example from the, the bad old days of, of British colonialism. Uh, the British, of course, you know, they, they were schismatics. They, they weren't, um, they had broken away from the one Catholic church, but they were still, you know, uh, following the basic doctrines. And uh, during the colonization of India, uh, Hindu priests came to the British commander in chief, uh, General Charles Napier, to complain to him about the prohibition of the custom of sati. Now, this was the Hindu practice of burning a widow alive on her deceased husband's funeral pyre. Not surprisingly, this was prohibited by the British, but the Hindus sought to reinstate the practice on the grounds that it was their custom. This is our custom. You should let us do it. And uh, <clears throat> Napier replied, he said, you say it is your custom to burn widows very well. We also have a custom when a man or when men burn a woman alive, we tie a rope around their necks and hang them. Build your funeral pyre. Beside it, my carpenters will build a gallows. Then you may follow your custom, and we will follow ours. Now, was he justified in this? You see, I believe so. The, and, and the difference, but uh, difference in attitude between Napier and the modern globalist elites, is that customs or, or manners are one thing that can and should be tolerated, but not if they go against morality. You know, uh, the Ten Commandments are written on the heart. This is the natural law. Deep down, everybody should know this, right? And G.K. Chesterton explained it uh, very well, as, as he so often did. He said, we are justified in enforcing good morals, for they belong to all mankind. But we are not justified in enforcing good manners, for good manners always mean our own manners. So when in Rome, do as the Romans do is a good axiom, but it doesn't apply to the Ten Commandments. You know, and, and rejecting that truth is what renders the forces of globalism powerless to stop, um, well, for example, the, the violence and misogyny of the Muslim immigrants who have been tearing Europe apart now for years. And not to mention our own kind of new barbarians, right? The, the Black Lives Matter movement and these they're kind of socialist fellow travelers in this country who are tearing down statues and, and you know, throwing bombs at uh, uh, government buildings and whatnot. Globalism is powerless against this, you know, kind of activity because they reject an objective moral standard on the one hand and on the other because their more radical element encourages this kind of violence and mayhem because they feed off the chaos to further their own agendas. Okay, so, so, there really is a, a distinction and a difference. 
Now, what, what does the simile of the lost sheep have to teach us in this situation? And that's the love of Jesus for sinners. <laughs> you know, the parable of the lost sheep uh, shows our Lord's compassion for individual sinners. The lost sheep signifies a sinner who, you know, is obeying his own evil inclinations and following the enticements of sin and thereby separates himself from Jesus. He separates himself from, from the life of grace and then is shut off from uh, the body of Christ, from the faithful. But our Savior doesn't withdraw his love from him. See, just as Jesus during his life on earth worked for the conversion of sinners, he still goes after the sinner today, calling him by his grace, right? Through the church, through, through the priest, through you and me. He invites the sinner to return once more to the fold uh, by means of the sacrament of penance. And when Jesus has found him, he receives him back with joy. And that applies to every sinner. The thing is that Jesus doesn't do this for his own sake. He doesn't need the straying sinner. He seeks him out of pure love for that poor sinner who's wandering about in real and present danger of falling into the pit of hell. And that's why in the parable, the, the good shepherd and his friends, that would be the angels and the saints, are so anxious about that one sheep that was lost. And it also explains their joy at his return and why it's greater than their calm and quiet joy about the faithful who, who never waver on the path of, civil, uh, of salvation. And we learn from this, uh, this parable the important doctrine that it is God who gives the first impulse to the conversion or, or the justification of a sinner, that, that the sinner is moved to be converted by God's, what they call preventing grace, as opposed to the, the sacramental grace of baptism or Holy Communion. We have that initial grace of justification that is conveyed either by inward inspirations or, you know, by the words of, of uh, pastors or parents or friends, or, you know, as in the case of the prodigal son, uh, which is conveyed by misfortune, you know, sickness, poverty, prison. Those are all good motivators to get right with God. And then it's our Lord who then supports the sinner by his grace on the road of penance until he's once more restored to the state of justification, the state of grace in the sacrament of confession. And, and finally, <clears throat> we see here good evidence for the Catholic doctrine of the communion of saints. If the blessed inhabitants of heaven rejoice over the conversion of sinners, then they must have a knowledge of it. And it follows, therefore, that the angels and saints in heaven know about us and care about us and pray for us. And so I submit that uh, what we need now more than ever is to pray for the sinners among us, including yours truly, including um, those, you know, in the hierarchy who are straying from the straight path, you know, uh, for each other, for our families. And we need to pray for them. And, and I ask you to pray for me, not only for, for our own sake, but especially for the love of Christ and his church. And that's no nonsense. Okay. Um, moving along. Oh gosh, probably 20 years ago, I was, um, speaking at a family conference out in Wichita and we had a, uh, a Q&A session, right? You had a panel where all the speakers kind of got up and uh, people uh, from the audience could ask questions. Always a popular uh, part of any conference. And uh, somebody asked if devotion to the Blessed Virgin was necessary for salvation. Is it necessary 
uh, to be devoted to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And one of the, um, you know, I had an apologist uh, convert guy. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but famous one. And he answered, no, it's not. Uh, devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary is not necessary. The rosary and the angelus, these are, these are private prayers. They're not obligatory. Um, the, the teachings uh, of the Blessed Virgin and private apparitions and so forth are not defide. Um, so devotion to Mary is good. It's commendable. Uh, I, he said, I'm personally devoted to the Blessed Virgin, pray my rosary every day, but technically it is not essential. And on the panel with us, there was a local priest. Now, he's not a, not a famous apologist, not an EWTN personality. He hadn't written any books or anything. He was just the priest that was there and who said uh, mass for us and gave the homily at that conference. And what he said about devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary was something that I think surprised uh, some of the uh, convert apologists on our panel, especially the one who had spoken just before him. And what he said, we'll talk about when we come back. Lots more on No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And before the break, we were talking about um, my experience at a family conference uh, 20 years ago where someone asked if uh, devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary was essential for the Catholic spiritual life and how one of our Protestant convert apologists said no, that um, devotion to Mary is good and commendable uh, and important in the Catholic life, that he was personally devoted to Mary, but it was not technically essential. And there was a priest there local priest who had said mass for us, not, not a celebrity, not a, not a rock star apologist or anything, just a, just a parish priest who took the mic and gently, but firmly took him to school. <laughs> he said that not only is devotion to Mary essential to living a good Catholic life, it is necessary for our salvation. And he quoted Thomas Aquinas, the universal doctor of the church. Mary is the whole hope of our salvation. Not only did Thomas Aquinas teach that, his, uh, his contemporary, St. Bonaventure, did as well. And uh, the predecessor of them both, the great Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, taught the same. And we're going to talk about why devotion to Mary is essential. But I, I do want to say that the apologist in question took the correction well and with due humility, and I would add with gratitude. And that's the thing, a, a good apologist, um, a good evangelist, a good Catholic, loves to be corrected. Because a good Catholic loves the truth. And I understand, uh, you know, where this guy was coming from. You know, for Mary is a real stumbling block, a, a real obstacle for many uh, Protestants. I can remember when I was with St. Joseph Communications, I had a dialogue with a, with a, uh, a Protestant guy for um, over a year. And, you know, we were kind of knocking down the objections one by one, like dominoes. First, it's apostolic succession then authority of the church, and then it's scripture and tradition, faith and works, the sacraments, baptism and, 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 and the Eucharist especially, and then finally Mary. And so, you know, he's like, ah, well, I don't know, the, what the Catholic Church teaches about Mary, praying to Mary, praying to saints, all that. And so we went after it. And I, and we, I just took the, the Marian dogmas one by one. 
And he's like, okay, mother of God, I can see that. Oh, okay. The Immaculate Conception. Yeah, that makes sense. Sure. Perpetual Virgin. Yes. You know, the scripture sure backs that up. I, I can see it. It makes sense. And then we got to the assumption. And and then he was just hung up on it. He's going, you know, it's like, and I'm showing him in, in scripture how um, others were assumed before Mary was. Enoch and Elijah and, and uh, most likely Moses were all taken body and soul into heaven. And the book of Revelation, you know, shows Mary uh, in heaven, you know, with with a, a crown on her head and the moon under her feet that, you know, she had a crown, a head and feet and, you know, her body was there. And he just couldn't get past it. It's, you know, he's saying, gosh, and in the fathers, you don't really read about it until, you know, the, 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 the third century, the, the 200s, which is still pretty early. I mean, the church is still in the catacombs. And then finally, I just, I got fed up with this guy. I said, look, your problem isn't the assumption. Your problem is that you're looking for an excuse not to convert, you know? And then, and actually I think it was kind of harsh, but it was the thing that, that uh, helped him turn the corner uh, eventually. And, you know, Bishop Sheen says that, that people sometimes resist the truth because it's hard to face, but more resist the truth because it's even harder to follow. And when it turns out that this guy was not only was uh, an evangelical, but he was a pastor with his own church, and he was a part owner of a chain of bookstores uh, where, you know, ownership was uh, contingent on accepting, you know, sola scriptura and sola fides and, and so forth, these Protestant doctrines. And so he had to give it all up. He had to give up his, his vocation and his livelihood in order to become a Catholic, which I am happy to say he had uh, or found the courage to do with God's grace. So Mary is a great obstacle for a lot of uh, converts. Now, it wasn't for me, you know, coming in. I, I mean, I was raised nominally Protestant, but I didn't have any anti-Mary animus or really anti-Catholic feelings of any kind. You know, my, my parents... Uh, like millions of other families, you know, we, we kind of fell away from the practice of going to church back in the early 60s when I was just a kid. And, and mom and dad may have not given me any real religious formation, but they certainly didn't hand on any prejudice either. And it was when I was in the RCIA that uh, the priest who was teaching the class said, you know, we, you know, it was like eight months long. He says, that's not long enough to teach you everything that you need to learn about Catholicism. So we spent the first 15, 20 minutes of every class praying five decades of the rosary. And, and I really, I would say that, that my conversion really hinged on the intercession of not only my, my lovely wife and, and the people at RCIA, but especially the Blessed Virgin Mary. And the rosary became a, a, a really uh, important part of my life and our marriage. And then you know, as our eldest got older and the other kids came along, it became an important part of our family life. You know, I would talk more about that uh, later on if we have the time. But but I want to talk about why devotion to Mary is so essential. And uh, like St. Thomas Aquinas, we should start, I think, by looking at the objections. The first is, you know, uh, that Catholics have an exaggerated love for Mary. And well, who teaches us to love Mary? God does. And it's God who loves her more than all other creatures. And how do we know that? Because by a special grace, God preserved her from the stain of original sin and chose her to be the mother of God the Son. I think I mentioned last week that no one is equal to Mary, that all persons are either above her or below her. Now, only the persons of the Trinity, only God is above her. You know, God, the Father, um, 
God, the Holy Ghost, her most holy spouse, and, and God the Son, her, her divine Son, Jesus. So they're the only persons that are above her, and all creatures, angels and men, even the angels and saints in heaven, are below her. So after the love and adoration that we owe to God, who is our, our creator, our redeemer, our sanctifier, our greatest love should be the veneration that we have for Mary, who is the mother of God and our mother. And then a question I've gotten is, can you love the Blessed Virgin Mary too much? And I, the answer to that question is no, because the more we love the Blessed Virgin, the more we become like Jesus. And we can obviously never love her as much uh, as he does, and so we can never love her too much. Furthermore, true love for the Blessed Virgin Mary is inseparable from uh, love for God. You know, and I think that's why some of our separated brethren are afraid when they come into the church, that they think our love for Mary takes away from our love for God. But we know that the Blessed Virgin Mary is a path to God. Hence the axiom of, of St. Bernard of Clairvaux, to Jesus through Mary. So the more we love God, the more we'll love the Blessed Virgin. And therefore, true love for Mary must always increase, must always be growing, because it's inseparably connected to our love for God. And, and here's where the rubber meets the road. We, we cannot love God without loving the Blessed Virgin Mary. Once we realize, and you know, this is, I, I know that some of our separated brethren don't, but once we realize that she's truly the mother of God, it's impossible to love God without loving the Blessed Virgin. Now, someone might ask, does that mean that we expressly have to think about Mary every time we pray? You know, do, do, if, we, if we pray to God, think about God, do we have to be thinking about Mary? Well, you know, of course not. <laughs> Even when she's not, you know, uh, specifically named or invoked, first off, she's delighted over every sincere prayer that rises to God. Her greatest joy is to see us grow closer to her son. You know, she tells us so in her Magnificat, which is a part of the inspired scriptures. It's uh, the prayer that we recite every day in the hour of Compline, in the divine office, the liturgy of the hours. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So true devotion to Mary does not run counter to the adoration of Jesus right, to, to the worship that's due to him. And, and you know, again, that's the stumbling block <clears throat> for the Protestants. But true devotion, you know, it does not at all run counter to the, the adoration we owe to Jesus. True devotion to Mary, uh, um, on the contrary, uh, history shows us that whenever devotion to Mary is given up, faith in the divinity of Christ tends to disappear as well. Back in the year 431, the church called the Council of Ephesus to combat the heresy of Nestorius, who denied the hypostatic union. Nestorius taught that there were two persons in Christ, one human and the other divine. And he claimed that Mary was only the mother of the human person of Christ. Mother of Jesus, yes. Mother of God, no. And the council defended the church's teaching that there's only one person in Christ, God the Son, second person of the Blessed Trinity, but that in that one person, there are two natures, human and divine. Therefore, the council proclaimed Mary theotokos, which means God-bearer. Simply put, and here's, here it is in syllogism form, Jesus is God, Mary is the mother of Jesus, therefore, Mary is the mother of God. And if you miss it, 
on Mary, you will miss it on the person of Jesus. And we've seen how the same Protestant denominations that abandoned devotion to Mary after the Reformation in the 16th century then became responsible for the demythologization of Scripture in the 19th century. Right, That historical critical method that tries to explain away the miracles of Christ and, and that separated the so-called Christ of faith from the Christ of history. You know, and the Christ of history was a preacher and a faith healer, right? And, and a man of great wisdom and compassion, but not God. You know, it was a progression. And we saw with the, with the rise of Protestantism in the 16th century, the idea that you don't need a pope. <clears throat> and that gave rise to the, the, the egalitarianism and liberalism of the 18th century that said you don't need a king which then begat the modernism slash socialism of the 20th century that says you don't need God. In every case, we just see a deepening rejection of mediatorship. I don't need Mary or the saints because I can go directly to God. Well, I don't need a king because I can govern myself. Ultimately, I don't need God because I decide what's good and evil. You see how the, that slippery slope. But St. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2, Verse 5, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But who's our mediator with Christ? Or should I say mediatrix? Well, that's also in the Bible, and we'll talk about it when we come back. Lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us, and we will be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio, No-Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold. Great to have you with us. Uh, before we went on the uh, to the break, I was asking the question, why do we need Mary and the saints? When uh, St. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. But who is our mediator with Christ? Well, the answer is in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, the story of the wedding at Cana. Jesus turned the water into wine precisely because Mary interceded on behalf of the couple. She acted as mediatrix. In the words of St. Bernard of Clairvaux, a mediator then was needed with the mediator himself, nor could a more fitting one be found than Mary. Everything comes to us through the hands of Mary, including Jesus himself. See, and that's not only at the stable in Bethlehem. St. Bonaventure put it this way, no one ever finds Christ but with and through Mary. Whoever seeks Christ apart from Mary seeks him in vain. In other words, as they say, no Mary, no Jesus. And St. Thomas Aquinas says, through the intercession of Mary, many souls are in paradise who would not be there had she not interceded for them. For God has entrusted her with the treasures of the heavenly kingdom. Now, these quotes, and, and literally countless others, represent a crucial doctrine, that Mary is co-redemptrix and mediatrix of all graces. That is a doctrine of the church that flows from Mary's role as mother of God and as new Eve. 
the years 1840 to 1950 are sometimes referred to as the Marian century because of the definition of the dogmas of the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption uh, and the apparitions of Mary at Lourdes and Fatima. So this was an important time of deepening the church's understanding of the perennial doctrine of Mary as co-redemptrix and mediatrix of all graces. Uh, It was widely assumed that Vatican II would make a fifth dogma, a fifth Marian dogma, out of the doctrine of co-redemptrix and mediatrix of all graces. However, I mean, if you know the history of Vatican II, you you know that the schemas, that is the the outlines for the documents that were proposed uh, that had been uh, prepared for the council and that had been organized by Pope St. John XXIII under the auspices of Cardinal Ottaviani and the Holy Office, which is the old name for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, all those schemas were abandoned. You know, a, a more progressive faction of bishops that were known as the Rhine Fathers because they were primarily from Germany and the Netherlands, they wanted the council fathers to come up with their own schemas. You know, I, I don't care that the Pope called this for a reason. We want to do our own thing. And so uh, they pushed to have all the schemas come up for a vote. And every one of them was abandoned. Although the vote uh, was, no vote was closer than the one for the proposed document on the Blessed Virgin. Out of all those bishops, hundreds of bishops, the Rhine faction prevailed by only about 15 votes. But it, it was uh, unfortunately abandoned. And ultimately, Vatican II produced no Marian document at all. But the fathers did put the, the council's teaching on Mary into chapter 8 of Lumen Gentium, which is the dogmatic constitution on the church. And it presented her, uh, and we talked about this last week, not so much as, as co-redemptrix, but as the model of the church and as a model Christian, uh, you know, in the sense of being someone to imitate. And that's good and, and, and fine as far as it goes. But it also tells us that Mary is more than that. You know, we know that through a unique privilege of grace, she was immaculate conceived, immaculately conceived. She remained without sin. Okay, uh, she cooperated in, in a unique way in our salvation as co-redemptrix and mediatrix. But I think you know it's possible that that, that wasn't emphasized for ecumenical reasons, because you know, as I say, so many Protestants find Mary's stumbling block, and and you know, and all that said, I mean, that's that's supposition on my part. And I don't have any problem with the dogmatic constitution of the church. Okay. The document is fine. Unfortunately, it's the spirit of Vatican II that came after the council that aren't kind of artificially separated the church into, you know, the pre-conciliar and the post-conciliar church. It was that uh, spirit that suggested Marian devotion, especially the rosary was somehow pre-Vatican II. And, and it was virtually abandoned in many sectors of the church. And and that was clearly not the intention of the majority of council fathers or the document itself. And then uh, St. Paul VI went on to write two documents on Mary and the Rosary after the council, Christi Matri in 1966 and Mariolis Cultis on the uh, right ordering and development of devotion to the Blessed Virgin in 1974. And in Christi Matri, which was published for the month of the Rosary, Pope Paul VI said, It is a solemn custom of the faithful during the month of October to weave the prayers of the rosary into mystical garlands for the mother of Christ. Following in the footsteps of our predecessors, we heartily approve this, and we call upon all the sons of the church to offer special devotions to the most blessed virgin. 
Okay. That doesn't exactly sound like a repudiation of the rosary to me. You know, and in Mary Alice Cultus, he said, from the moment when we were called to the Sea of Peter, we have constantly striven to enhance devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, not only with the intention of interpreting the sentiments of the church and our own personal inclination, right? he's personally devoted, but also, he says, because, as is well known, this devotion forms a very noble part of the whole sphere of that sacred worship in which there intermingle the highest expressions of wisdom and of religion, and which is therefore the primary task of the people of God. He puts Mary right in the center of the highest expression of wisdom and of religion. Now, in one of her apparitions, Mary herself said, the prayer of my predilection, that is the prayer that I like best, is the Holy Rosary. And for this reason, in my apparitions, I always ask that it be recited. Now, there's a list of popes as long as your arm that have promoted the rosary. And the church teaches that after the liturgy, it is the best prayer for Catholics to recite in common. And you can gain a plenary indulgence daily for yourself or, or for the souls in purgatory for reciting the rosary in public. And that includes the family rosary. And, and the prayer itself, the rosary combines vocal and mental prayer. It's like vocal prayer and meditation. It can be a deeply contemplative prayer. And the mysteries form, as St. John Paul II said, a compendium of the gospel. And it helps us to know God through the intercession of the one human creature who knew him and knows him best, his own mother. And not only that, but, you know, you know I have a medieval mentality. <laughs> And that I think that most of our, the problems in our modern culture derive from bad thinking. And the rosary is a thinking prayer. Our Lady is the virgin most prudent, right? Prudence is that virtue that, that helps you take the, the right means to a good end. So being virgin most prudent, she well knows that creeds go before deeds. Okay, in other words, we behave as we believe. We act as we think. And daily meditation on the mysteries of the rosary, which are all from the gospel, is a good thing, right? Now, there are several uh, versions, several different chaplets of the rosary. There's the Servite rosary, which is, uh, meditates on the seven sorrows, and the Franciscan rosary that meditates on the seven joys. Um, St. John Paul uh, introduced the chaplet of the luminous mysteries, right, which is, uh, meditates on the public ministry of Christ. But when we say the rosary, I suspect what people usually think of is the, the prayer that Our Lady gave to St. Dominic, right? those traditional 15 mysteries of the rosary that drive home the four great ends of religion. One, the joyful mysteries remind us that life and religion are meant to be just that, joyful. God made us to be happy, and he put the first man and woman into a world that was a paradise. But even with that paradise lost, our joy remains. Like Paul says to the Philippians, rejoice always. And, and the joyful mysteries show us how to obtain that joy, namely by doing God's will, as Mary did, and St. Joseph, and, and Elizabeth, and Zechariah, and Anna, and Simeon, and the shepherds, and the wise men. They all found happiness doing the will of God, and so will we, regardless of our circumstances. Number two, the sorrowful mysteries teach us the second great truth of religion is that sin is what makes this world a veil of tears. Not doing God's will is the path of sorrow. 
going our way and not his way is the path to pain and unhappiness. The glorious mysteries uh, teach us the third great truth of religion, namely that life has a purpose, a goal, even beyond death. You know, for the Christian, life isn't, isn't cyclic. We're not just going around in circles like the pagans of old. Life without purpose is exasperating, even it's maddening. And that's why the hallmark of paganism was boredom and apathy and suicide, which is not unlike the secularism and relativism of our own day. But we Catholics mark the passage of time with the liturgical cycle following the, the, the seasons of the year. But for us, life itself is not cyclical, but linear. We are all of us heading for a coming judgment. Life is going somewhere, namely either to heaven or to hell. And the glorious mysteries remind us that our destiny is the glorious life beyond this life, because we are the, the adopted children of God. We're the brothers and sisters of Christ, and therefore the heirs of the kingdom of heaven. And, and fourthly, uh, the 15 mysteries altogether teach us the fourth great truth of our religion, that sanctity is for everybody. Lumen Gentium says that all Christians of whatever rank or status are called to holiness. And that with, you know, with God's help, with his grace, it is within our reach. Right? This, the quest of Christian perfection, the universal call to holiness, is for you and me. And not just you know, the Pope and the bishops or the, the you know, sisters in the convent. And the rosary gets us thinking about all of those truths, and those thoughts lead to action. Our Lady knows that you can't meditate on our Lord's life, death, and resurrection day in and day out without it having a good effect. The rosary changes us for the thoughts that enfold you or the thoughts that mold you. And Our Lady's not asking for a revolution or even a reformation, but a restoration. The whole of Christianity is a restoration project from the beginning to restore the relationship with God that was broken in the Garden of Eden, and that requires a change of heart. That's why Mary asks for the rosary, because it changes hearts. It changed mine. And when hearts change, society changes. And that's why St. John Paul II said, the rosary helps us to be conformed ever more closely to Christ until we attain true holiness. And that's no nonsense. Hey, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for listening to the program. Thank you for your support of Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Uh, your spiritual support, especially your prayers. If you can uh, afford to uh, support us financially, I encourage you to go to vmpr.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you and your family.